Welcome back to Wicked Good Lawyers. I'm your host, Shyla. I'm a fifth-year associate at Barton Gilman, and we're excited to have our special guests this week. Before we kick it off, I just want to give some personal updates. As you might know, we've been in a bit of a limbo with the show due to my marriage nuptials over the summer. I'm happy to say I'm a new wifey to my husband, Stephen Luna, so I've changed my name to Shyla Luna. This season, we're really excited to bring a variety of guests from trademark attorneys to in-house counsel for pharmaceutical companies, personal injury, you name it. So if you have any suggestions or if you want to reach out, feel free. Uh, You can reach us at wickedgoodlawyers at gmail.com. So let's kick it off. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts, and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, we soundly collect, process, and upload this data to an efficient hosted review platform at an affordable price, allowing you to organize your discovery in one place. Collaborate with your team and experts, withhold and tag for privilege, and find relevant documents more quickly for production. Every litigator deserves to have an e-discovery review support that is efficient and affordable, while access to customer service and project managers that answer questions quickly and make them feel supported. Hundreds of Boston-based litigation attorneys and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with their e-discovery. You should too. Call on Datamine to implement a discovery plan for more efficient and effective collection, review, and production of electronically stored information. Go to datamindiscovery.com or call 617-329-9530, mention Wicked Lawyers, and schedule a consultation today. Today, we're excited to shine a spotlight on a remarkable company making waves in the legal and litigation support industry. Meet Hughesby, voted number one in the 2023 National Law Journal's Best Of for both court reporting and video depositions. Hughesby is the leading nationwide provider of court reporting, trial services, and litigation support. With decades of experience under their belt, Hughesby has established itself as a reliable partner for legal professionals seeking top-notch support in their cases. Their team of certified court reporters is known for their accuracy, professionalism, and attention to detail, ensuring that every word in a deposition or trial is captured precisely. What sets Hughesby apart is their unwavering commitment to personalized customer service. I can speak in regards to my cases and I use Hughesby for my depositions and they are fantastic. So whether you're an attorney, paralegal, or legal professional, Hughesby is your go-to partner for seamless, reliable, and efficient litigation experience. You will not regret it. Don't just take our word for it. Visit Hughesby.com to explore their comprehensive services and see why they're at the forefront of the legal support industry. Hey, Wicked Good Lawyer listeners, I'm Shyla, and we're back for this week's episode of Wicked Good Lawyers. Our special guest today is Kara Thorvaldson. She's an experienced litigator representing clients from pre-suit litigation through the exhaustion of appeals. Currently a partner at Lawson & Whiteson LLP in Boston Seaport. Her primary areas of focus are business and commercial litigation, an expansion into trademarks, intellectual property, professional malpractice, insurance litigation, and other complex litigation. Kara is a strategic thinker who understands clients' objectives, both from a legal and business perspective, and is a creative problem solver and trusted advisor who understands the nuances of client issues. 
Welcome, Kara. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Shyla. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, me and Kara go way back. We were both on the Claims and Litigation Management Board, so we're really close. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity for her to come on to share her experience from when she used to be an associate until she became a partner, and then her moves and her current practice and trademarks. So just to share with our listeners, this episode is broken into three segments. The first is we're not family, we're co-workers. The second is partners who move. And the third is on trademark law. So in the wake of quiet quitting, Kara, since the beginning of COVID, I've been seeing this new movement where co-workers are not accepting the idea that they're family in an office. Have you seen this trend? I definitely think that's the case because I think everybody got to go home and spend more time with their family and realized where their priorities really lie. Yeah, that's so true. I didn't really think of it from that side of things, but I also like the personal touches of an office. You know, you're there a lot more than you are at home for the most part, unless you're fully hybrid or fully remote. Have you seen any issues with the blend between at-home work and your professional responsibilities? Well, I have to say that during the couple of years that I was working primarily remotely during COVID, there was a lot of blending and overlap between my home responsibilities and my work responsibilities. It was a lot more difficult to compartmentalize. And since this past spring, I've been coming into the office and it's become a lot more realistic for me to do work when I'm at work and then to put it aside and just be fully present when when I'm at home, which I am glad about. I also find it difficult to break up the work and home, especially when you work from home. I'm hybrid. So we are in the office about two days a week and at home three days a week. Things I enjoy with that are on my lunch break, I can start a little laundry. I can do some meal prep. I can play with my dog. But then on the flip side of that, it'll be 5.30. You're still getting emails. You're still getting texts. You're like, how do I stay ahead? Do you have any advice in people navigating that side of things? Not really. I think everybody has their own individual style and you have to find what works for you. And I think if you find yourself going too far in one direction, it's kind of on you to sort of self-correct. Don't you think? You know, I agree, I'm- yes. Everyone's different. So it's hard to kind of put everyone in one certain um, avenue and say, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. And there's, you know, with litigation, I know that you're in litigation too. There's an ebb and flow to that. So you might have time periods where everything's on fire and you have, like you recently did, I believe, (laughs) a whole bunch of hearings and court appearances and trials. And it's just naturally your home and family life have to be sort of, I don't want to say backburnered, but they're not going to get your primary focus for at least that period of time. But then there's lulls too with litigation. And then you can, if you want to work from home and, you know, take an afternoon off when everybody thinks you're still logged on, you know, I think that's okay. I think that's okay. That's the beautiful thing about being a litigator. And I think being a lawyer is I think more so than other professions or other jobs, you're sort of in charge of your own schedule and, and you get to be your own boss a little bit. I agree. I think less of that as an associate that I am now, but there is that potential to have more flexibility. I've seen that more with the hybrid approach. I also hope it's not just for me, but other people are experienced somewhat of less burnout where they do have that time to 
you know, connect at home, whether they're not going to the office commuting that hour each way, they're able to make their own schedules for which days they go in the office. And then as you were saying with um, having the busy schedules one month and then the next month, it's kind of less frequent. That helps, especially in litigation, to catch your breath, for lack of a better term. But when it's on fire, it's definitely on fire. I'm sure you can relate. Yeah. And then, you know, I think people's personal lives do that too. As a parent, I know that there's busier and less busy times of the year. Like the end of the school year, there's always concerts and parties and meetings. And then, you know, in the summertime, even the work may slow down, sort of your family life may slow down too. And that's why it's great to take vacations then. So I think you just have to kind of be flexible and adjust to whatever's going on around you as you go. And being somebody who's so type A, the flexibility sometimes with the ebb and flow gets me um, because some months you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to hit my hours because it is a slower litigation month. But then it bounces back the next month and everything's going, everything's getting tried, every depot's happening. And then you're like, oh, good. So I can catch up on all my hours. But it's always trying to find that happy medium. Yeah, it's tough. Why do you think people are so against building a quote unquote family at work? I don't know. I mean, do you think it's because there's more mobility in the past few years? You know, I know a lot more people who have changed jobs in the past couple of years than probably in the eight to 10 years before that. I've been seeing a lot more people make a jump. They're trying to find a better work culture or work-life balance. And as you were saying, I also think people are seeing the importance of their actual at-home family and trying to put any extra time into that where people in many industries didn't have that opportunity before COVID. Yeah, I've definitely heard from people who realized with spending time more at home, what they were actually missing when they weren't there. I think that's definitely true. But I will say too, that I've been really happy to be back in the office for the past few months, partly because I started a new job. And so connecting with my new colleagues in person, it's qualitatively different than just having a few phone calls here and there or Zooms. So I think it's been really beneficial. I've really enjoyed getting to know my new colleagues and, and I continue to learn from the people that I work with, you know? So I think that's an important aspect of being in person around the people and connecting with the people that you work with. I'm a very personable person as well. So I enjoy the days in the office and being able to catch up with other people, but also where I'm a fifth year, I can get more exposure to partners, get more hands-on advice than I would at home because I'm not passing somebody in the hallway saying, oh, hey, like I had this question on this draft. I find it to be more collaborative while you're in the office because everyone kind of has the same background. When I'm at home with my fiance at home, he's not a lawyer. So he does, he's not really somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of for drafting a motion to compel or things like that. So I do enjoy being in the office. <laughs> the only downside with the office is people love to chat, me being one of them. And sometimes I think it cuts into my billable hours. Have you experienced that? A hundred percent. You know, I was home most of last week because I had COVID and I billed more hours that week <laughs> working remotely than I than I did, you know, the previous couple of weeks working in the office. So I do. I think, you know, the social aspect of being in the office can cut into your productivity. But there's a reason why it's enjoyable to chat with your colleagues. You know, I mean, it's good for you mentally, I think. Yeah. And I know you, Shyla, I know for you personally, it's paid off in your career, you know, you being such a personable and friendly person, it's open doors for you. So 
that's not something to you want to completely shut down either. Thanks for the shadow, Kara. Yeah, <laughs> it helps to put your face out there. I know people try to really build up their name and reputation on LinkedIn or virtually, but it's not the same. You know, they don't get the same vibe or approach that one would get when they see you in person. So yeah, I'm a big advocate for in-person things, but in a crazy industry like this, I think firms need to remain flexible to stay competitive for attorneys going forward. But yeah, bringing us back to the main topic of we're not family, we're coworkers. Big picture. I mean, you already have a family, right? And it's hard to create this relationship in a more professional setting. You know, I wouldn't argue with someone at work the way I would argue with my sister. (laughs) And that's probably for the better. But I think going forward, just having some boundaries is such a big thing with the office and with your family. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. You don't want to bring your personal issues into work. You know, you don't want to bring your personal problems into work. Keep things professional. Keep things social. Keep things friendly. That's great. But yeah, there's definitely good boundaries to maintain. It's good for everybody. Yeah, it's definitely good for everybody, whether it's staff, attorneys, anybody that works in an office setting. Just so you kind of all are on the same page with the goals while you're in the office, but then people also have things happen at work that can impact your work. So I think it's nice to at least have somebody in your office that you can connect with on that level to just say, hey, this is happening. This is why something's late, just to keep everyone on the same page. Oh, you definitely need to have that one work BFF. Yeah. And that's our segment on We're Not Family, We're Coworkers. Speaking of we're not family, we're co-workers, Kara, isn't it true that you actually met your husband who was a co-worker? I actually did. You know, that is a funny story. And it definitely shows that, you know, setting healthy boundaries doesn't always prevent <laughs> work and family from coming together in strange ways. Yeah, I met my husband of now almost seven years at my last law firm. We had worked together probably for about six years prior to that and almost never talked. We both maintained really, really strict, healthy boundaries of work and family. And what ended up happening is we we were both married to other people and we ended up getting divorced around the same time. And he became my work BFF. And then eventually he became more than that. And the funny thing of this story is there was a lot of people that we worked with who never even knew. And yeah, until I was back from maternity leave. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> a pretty good secret, I guess. Was your firm supportive in that type of relationship? Yeah, the firm was fine. You know, we did what we were supposed to do in terms of disclosing things and we never worked on any matters together. So we sort of kept it real professional in the office and what we did on our own time was our own business. Right. And It's good to hear that setting healthy boundaries is beneficial for your career, but you can also find friendship in firms, especially in a difficult situation, such as like a post-divorce, finding that connection with somebody to help you kind of get through the tough times is great. And I am shocked also to hear that you married coworkers. So this is great part of our segment on we're not family, we're coworkers. (laughs) Kara, now I'd love to talk about your story. We learned a little bit about you in the last segment, but this segment's all about partners who move. I know you're currently a partner, but then right before this, you were also a partner at your old firm. So it's always interesting to hear people's stories on 
associates making a jump, but I don't hear it as much for partners, but I think that's been a big move lately, especially um, post COVID. So I'd love to hear your story. Who is Kara? So I am not a Boston native. um, So that kind of makes me an outcast in this area. Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York in a little tiny place called Long Island. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I grew up, my father had his own business. My mom worked for the business. So I grew up in a pretty middle-class, hardworking family, went to state university. And then uh, I worked my way through school working as a ferry boat captain. Cool. Yeah. It was the best summer job you can imagine. I had a 110 master's license, which meant that I could drive anything under power up to a hundred tons and near coastal waterways. And no, I don't keep it up anymore. So (laughs) no, I'm not moonlighting. So our, our listeners shouldn't give you a call if they need a cruise. No, I'm no longer a cruise director. <laughs> but it did pique my interest in maritime law, which is actually what drew me to where I went, to, uh, where I attended law school at Tulane. So I went down to Tulane Law School in New Orleans and studied maritime law there for three years and graduated. Had a great time while I was there, by the way. <laughs> Needless Highly to recommend say. it. Highly recommend New Orleans for anybody who's never been there before. I have not been. It's on my list. So, yeah. So that's actually, I met my first husband in law school. He was from Minnesota. I was from New York. We were living in New Orleans. So obviously it made sense to move to Boston. So that's what we did. Yeah. Obviously that's like the next step, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Totally. Totally made sense. So I started out um, actually clerking in Rhode Island in the Superior Court. So I took the Mass Bar and then I took the Rhode Island Bar. Um, I worked in what at the time was called the Clerk Pool, which was basically a group of fresh out of law school law clerks working for all the Superior Court judges in Rhode Island. And it was great. It was something that I really, really wanted to do because I knew I wanted to be a litigator. And I felt that going behind the scenes with the court would be great insight into how the judicial system worked. You enjoyed your time at your clerkship. Did you share with us where you went to college? I went to SUNY Stony Brook, which is a state university in New York. I studied abroad a year at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England, which was amazing. Great experience. And I studied English and psychology. And I like to say that those degrees actually really stand me in good state now because as a litigator, it's all about telling a story and figuring out what people's motives are, whether it's why they did what they did or what it's going to take to get them to want to settle mm-hmm. or how you're going to win your case. It's all about what's what's in people's heads, what makes them tick, and then how to tell their story in the most effective way. It definitely sounds like a helpful foundation, especially the storytelling. I always think it's it doesn't hurt to kind of take extra classes or read um, on storytelling because it doesn't only come across in your drafting, but also if you're on trial or in a mediation or an arbitration. So it's always interesting to hear different majors that people study. I'm a poli-sci person, and I know lots of people do poli-sci. But English and psychology, not every attorney does that. Well, I like to say that I am a counselor in both senses of the word. And (laughs) I'm sure, well, you know it from, you know, working with clients. A lot of times they really appreciate not just the good legal advice that you're giving them, but the fact that you're providing them with sort of guidance and wise counsel. You know, I think that's a huge part of what we do every day. Consulting is such a big trend now. And I see a lot of clients wanting not only the black and white legal analysis, but also 
the big picture approach for their lives and situations. So it definitely plays a part in different avenues in the litigation industry. What are your current practice areas? Right now, what I'm working on day to day, I have some securities litigation that's taking up a lot of my time. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Can't talk too much about it. You know, there there are some potential secret. Yeah, there's some government involvement in some of these things. You know, I have a few clients that I manage their trademark portfolios, which I absolutely love doing. And I've been working on expanding that. So that involves, you know, helping people figure out their branding strategies, figuring out, you know, helping them strategize as to what their products and services are going to be over the next few years, how they want to be known in whatever their industry is, and then helping them get to a point where they can actually protect effectively their intellectual property and oftentimes going out and enforcing it. So I might get an email from a client with a screenshot of an Instagram post. Hey, this other company is knocking off my stuff. What are we going to do? Wow. Um, yep. So yeah. It's, it's really common. And I think it's becoming more and more mainstream for even small businesses now to really worry about those issues because every single business is now, you know, in interstate commerce, even the smallest mom and pop store, they might have an internet presence, they have social media presence. And that means everything they have is really available all over the world. Yeah. And I can't wait to get more into that in the trademark section. Going back a little bit, after your clerkship, kind of what pushed you in your professional path towards partnership and then from partnership to your second partnership? So after my clerkship, I worked for a small boutique firm in Boston um, and pretty quickly moved on from there. It just wasn't the best fit for my personality. And I landed at a larger firm where I was given a lot more independence and responsibility right off the bat. It was an extremely busy practice. So as a matter of course, there was a little bit of a sink or swim element to it. Obviously, I think I swam. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I would say you did. But I loved it. I loved the busyness of it. I loved the intellectual rigor of learning you know, new areas of the law constantly. A big part of what I did right off the bat was defending a lot of lawyers, which meant that I had to learn their area of law in order to effectively defend them. So whether it was a bankruptcy attorney, trust and estate attorney, personal injury attorney, tax attorney, you sort of have to get up to speed on their expertise and then figure out the best way to to defend them. I hope we never have to call you, Kara. <laughs> I hope not. I'm sure you won't. But just in case, everyone write Kara's info down. <laughs> never know. Yeah. So, um, so I started out, you know, as a young, bright-eyed associate, and I got married pretty much right out of law school. And within a few years, you know, when I was a mid-level associate, I had a child, and at that point. I was lucky enough that my firm was willing to work with me with a flexible schedule. And I actually went down to three days a week for a few years after my first child. And I think that that was huge for me because I knew that I wanted to stay in the game. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to continue private practice and be a lawyer and be a litigator. But having a child and, you know, everybody experiences it differently. It, It fundamentally altered my life and my priorities. And yes, over time, things shifted back where my, you know, so much of my focus wasn't on my home life and my child. And and I focused more on my career again after a time and I had adjusted. I think that that time period where I was working part time and I was adjusting to everything, all of the demands of being a parent, 
that really allowed me to actually stay in it and, you know, eventually come back full time and make partner. And I think I would say that that time period that I was part time did probably slow the trajectory of going from associate to partner. But as far as I'm concerned, it was worth it because it made that whole time period manageable for me. I appreciate you sharing that, especially a woman in the industry. It's hard to kind of navigate it on your own and see what works best for you and other people. Um, Did you feel like the flex schedule was on par with the legal industry at the time? Or did you feel like they were more supportive than other places? I felt that they were kind of cutting edge to allow me to do a three-day week schedule. There were a couple other women in my office who would come on. They were more senior attorneys, more of counsel type roles, who they had their own you know, specialties and they met a specific need within the firm. So I think I was the first associate, at least in our office, who was given that option. And I think that it really was a little bit groundbreaking. I mean, so this would have gone back to about 2009 or so. I think it's become a lot more common now. Yeah. But it was huge at the time. Especially for you to not only bounce back and be able to keep doing what you love for work, but also that you still were on track to get partner. Yeah. You know, and the message that I received there too was if I had wanted to stay part time, I still would have been eligible for consideration as partner, which I thought was also huge. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've heard that before. Yeah. I mean, ultimately for me, it was the right choice to go back to work full time because I had that hunger. And I wanted to do it. I wanted to be in the office. And what I found after a while, when my son was old enough to be in daycare, you know, in preschool, was I ended up working on the other days that I wasn't supposed to be working so much that it just made sense to to just be full time. I have heard that a lot as well. People that think they're on like a flex schedule, but they end up doing the work anyways. But actually they're at a pay cut because they had already agreed to. So it's kind of finding a happy balance. But I'm glad that that was the experience you had and it still allowed you to hit your career goals that you wanted. And then after you were, are you elected partner or how does that work? So for the partnership program at the firm that I was at, you sort of had to be nominated. Okay. You know, your supervising partners. And then there was sort of an application or vetting process, you know, where you have to sort of make a presentation, um, travel sort of to the the mothership office (laughs) and meet with the partnership uh, committee. And so it was a process, but I think it was also a process where you weren't going to get nominated if there wasn't, you know, pretty strong confidence that you were going to be promoted. Right. So that was great. I mean, it was it was wonderful to feel such a vote of confidence from my colleagues that they felt that I was, you know, good enough and enough of a leader and had enough potential and that they wanted me to be sort of one of the core members of the the team, essentially. Yeah, that's definitely such a pivotal moment in someone's career. If that's what they're reaching for, not everybody wants that. But I know it's such a highlight when people look back from going to an associate to a partner. What year did you make partner? So that would have been 2017. So I was um, I was a partner for about five years before I actually made a lateral move. And what made you decide to look somewhere else? I was actually invited to my current firm by somebody I had a case against. Oh, okay. I love um, that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. It's kind of a compliment, I think. Yeah. 
So that was nice. I mean, I, I, I will admit that I had my eyes open. I was exploring opportunities, partly because I had worked at the same place just for such a long time. Right. That I sort of felt that I had plateaued there a little bit. Understandable. Um, it was a great place to work with a tremendous amount of opportunities. And I was able to really develop the types of practices that I was interested in. But at the same time, it was such a large organization that I, I found myself spending so much time working on other people's matters mm-hmm. and working for whatever teams I was on that I was finding it difficult to focus on developing my, my own individual practice and my own clientele. And you're able to kind of do that where you are now? Yeah. I feel a lot more ownership over my own practice now and a lot more control, which was really kind of the change that I was hoping for. What steps did you take that were most beneficial to help you become partner somewhere else? Honestly, I think in terms of my lateral move, just doing a good job and gaining the respect of my colleagues and my opponents kind of just proving yourself, you know, the walking the walk. Yeah. I think internally within the firm to, to be promoted to partner in the first instance, it was a combination of things. And it's, you know, like you and I were talking about before, it is being a leader within the firm, participating in committees and initiatives within the firm to show that you care about the firm's future and internal development, being a mentor to younger associates, being a resource to your colleagues, you know, things like that, that just show you're adding value to the firm beyond just your billable hours. And then of course, you know, being somebody that the firm wants to put out there as being a representative or the face of the firm that you're working for. Yeah, that's huge, especially this day and age, you know, back in the day, I think it was not as common to be more selective in who they were trying to put as the face and then things happen, stories come out. And now I think they're really trying to do a big push, not only in diversity, but also in just having good people. I think that goes a long way. Today, we're excited to shine a spotlight on a remarkable company making waves in the legal and litigation support industry. Meet Hughesby, voted number one in the 2023 National Law Journal's Best Of for both court reporting and video depositions. Hughesby is the leading nationwide provider of court reporting, trial services, and litigation support. With decades of experience under their belt, Hughesby has established itself as a reliable partner for legal professionals seeking top-notch support in their cases. Their team of certified court reporters is known for their accuracy, professionalism, and attention to detail, ensuring that every word in a deposition or trial is captured precisely. What sets Hughesby apart is their unwavering commitment to personalized customer service. I can speak in regards to my cases and I use Hughesby for my depositions and they are fantastic. So whether you're an attorney, paralegal, or legal professional, Hughesby is your go-to partner for seamless, reliable, and efficient litigation experience. You will not regret it. Don't just take our word for it. Visit Hughesby.com to explore their comprehensive services and see why they're at the forefront of the legal support industry. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts, and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. 
At DataMind Discovery, we soundly collect, process, and upload this data to an efficient hosted review platform at an affordable price, allowing you to organize your discovery in one place. Collaborate with your team and experts, withhold and tag for privilege, and find relevant documents more quickly for production. Every litigator deserves to have an e-discovery review support that is efficient and affordable, while access to customer service and project managers that answer questions quickly and make them feel supported. Hundreds of Boston-based litigation attorneys and beyond trust DataMind every month to assist them with their e-discovery. You should too. Call on DataMind to implement a discovery plan for more efficient and effective collection, review, and production of electronically stored information. Go to datamindiscovery.com or call 617-329-9530, mention Wikigood Lawyers, and schedule a consultation today. Can you share what a general salary range might be for a partner? I would say that it varies wildly, and it can depend upon the firm's compensation structure. And by that, I mean um, whether it's sort of a quote-unquote eat-what-you-kill model or whether they have sort of a lockstep. But, you know, so much of it comes down to how much are you bringing in in terms of your own work? And then how much, how busy are you keeping other attorneys on your team? So I would say for a partner, your compensation is going to be really tightly tied to revenue revenue that you're generating. That's why it's hard to say. So, you know, you can do some mathematical exercises and look at your rates and look at the rates of the people who are doing the work for you and look at the hours and kind of get a, a thumbnail sketch of what you can expect to be compensated. Right. But I think that there's also, depending on the firm, a level of subjectivity. Right. If you have an executive or a compensation committee that's making these decisions, they may see some people as more valuable than others. Some people as more uh, likely uh, flight risks than others, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. You know? So the more portable your business is, I think the more valuable you are. That's part of it too. How do you feel younger associates can make partner if they don't think they have connections like a more senior partner or if they don't technically have their own book of business yet? I think one thing is to make yourself really indispensable to your team. Um, one great way to do that is by carving out a niche for yourself in some sort of specialty area. So I know that, you know, cyber and privacy are really hot areas right now. Those yeah, are good areas to develop. Yeah. But it could be something, you know, very traditional as well. If you become the expert in, within your office or within your firm at that particular thing, even if you're not the one bringing in the clients, you're a resource for everybody's clients. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I know, particularly to our firm, we have one person who really likes to specialize in appeals and not everybody enjoys them or has that niche. So it's interesting that he kind of carved that out for himself and he really enjoys that work and that kind of makes him indispensable. That's a great example. That is, yeah. When did you know it was time to kind of move on from your prior firm? An easy conclusion to come to for me. I really kind of agonized over it. I had been a little bit restless and the opportunity to move presented itself. And I really struggled with, you know, the timing. I struggled with a lot of feelings of loyalty to the people that I worked for. Yeah. I mean, the partners that I sort of grew up under. One thing that was sort of a motivating factor for me was I had a little bit of a sense. 
at my prior firm that having been there for so long, I was never going to escape the perception, whether this was justified or not, that I was still a young attorney, still an associate. Interesting. I felt like it was hard to make that transition to make people really perceive me as not just being somebody to be supervised or somebody to be given work, but instead as a leader and one of the elder, you know, more senior people. I think as a woman in particular, that's hard. I have heard that a lot, especially from women. Um, and you don't want to feel as though you, you're you not an equal to your fellow partners. So I could see the decision. Um, but I also agree with the loyalty. Some people are very loyal, especially if you've been there basically your whole career. It's There's a lot of unknowns. And the same point on, I just want to share with some of our listeners that the grass isn't always greener. And it's definitely worth putting the time in doing your research to make sure if you feel like the jump's the right move, talk to people who are there, ask your friends in the industry if that's the right decision, because you kind of just don't want to make a jump if it's just like compensation related. It's more than that. It's the big picture and long-term goals, I think. Would you agree, Kara? Oh, yeah, 100%. You don't want to make any decision like that lately. And what is your best advice on bringing in new clients to a firm? I think the best advice for bringing in new clients to a firm is find a good way to keep top of mind to the types of people that you would like to either be your clients or who would be likely to refer you clients. So Shyla, you're a great example of this. You're a great networker. You're a great connector. You keep in touch with people. You've been doing it since day one. That's going to stand you in such good stead. So for younger attorneys, a piece of advice that I think would be good to follow would be keep in touch with your law school classmates. You never know where they're going to end up in-house at other firms. Keep in touch with your college friends. You know, even if they're moving around the country, you never know when somebody might need legal help in your geographic area. You don't have to be best friends with everybody, but just keeping a line of communication open with a holiday card, a comment on their LinkedIn post, simple things like that can actually just help you stay fresh in their minds. And so when they think of you, well, the other piece of that is making sure that people know what you do. Yeah. So that they think of you or they think of a need that you could help them with, you know, you're right there. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. Also going off of them knowing what type of area or work you can provide somebody is almost having an elevator pitch, something that you could tell somebody in 60 seconds how you could add value to anyone, not even particularly them, but kind of the community or a whole of your specific industry that you work on. I think that's always helpful because sometimes I think about what I do for work. I'm like, hmm, how do I really explain this to anybody I meet? Sometimes it's over their head. You know, for instance, care with your trademark work. Mine, I'm like, what the heck are trademarks? Which hopefully everyone will know more by the end of this episode, but it's kind of hard to sell yourself and things like that. Do you have kind of like an elevator pitch for lack of a better term for you? I've actually been actively working on that recently. So stay tuned. I'll be coming out with something soon. Yeah, that sounds great. But um, you're right. I think it's, as a litigator, it's really hard to put in a nutshell what you do. And so if people ask you what you specialize in, I think my my really quick answer is I help people solve problems, you know? Yeah, that's a great response. And things partners have been sharing with me is when you're trying to pursue your career, yes, it's okay to do a little of everything. And that always helps you kind of 
keep you on your toes for your education and your clients, but also make you marketable. But what even help you kind of expand on that is finding like your specific area that you're like, hey, if I run into somebody, what's the first thing I'm going to share that I do? Something that you are really passionate about, something that you want to explore more, that should be your go-to. Well, you can also keep in mind the other areas that you do just in case they come up or if you're trying to sell areas for your firm. I always think that's helpful. I think that's a great tip. And that was our segment on Partners Who Move. Thanks, Kara. Okay, Kara, now I'd love to talk more about your practice and trademark law. As I said before, I don't really know much about it. So I'm hoping you can kind of give us some insight on what you do, what are common trends and how people might think of you for these type of cases. So you've been in trademark law for a bit now, but I know you're expanding more in Boston, right? Yeah, I have been handling trademark litigation for over 10 years now and have within the past five or six years gotten more into trademark prosecution. So I'm kind of expanding out into that. And what made you want to build your skills in this practice area? The first trademark litigation that I had sort of came to me by chance when a partner in my firm needed a Rhode Island attorney and I fit the bill and just so happened that the plaintiff in the case was a Swedish company. So I got an email out of the blue. Hey, I see you're admitted in Rhode Island. Are you Swedish? Because my last name sounds Swedish. And I wrote back, uh, hey, I am admitted in Rhode Island. I'm Norwegian. Is that close <laughs> enough? <laughs> uh, of course, I'm not really Norwegian either, right? I mean, I don't speak Norwegian or anything. Right. But, um, but that was my first, first foray into trademark litigation. And I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I absolutely loved about it was it involves a lot of really creative people. Like when you get into the IP space, whether it's trademarks, copyrights, um, whether it's trademarks, copyrights, patents, trade secrets, you get involved with people who are creative, who are smart, who are innovative, and they're great clients to work with. What are trademarks in general and why should we care about them? So trademark is one branch of intellectual property that allows somebody who is providing, you know, business services or some kind of products to basically put their stamp or their mark on something so that people in the general public know what the source of those goods or services are. It helps customers distinguish between the sources so that they know that what they're getting is the quality that they're looking for. Um, One of the really important things about trademark law that distinguishes trademarks from other types of IP protection is that trademarks don't have a time limit. So you can have a trademark and protect it essentially infinitely. Interesting. Um, Unlike patents or copyrights, which eventually expire. Can you trademark anything? No, you cannot trademark anything. So you've got to be the the sort of core protection for trademarking is it's got to be used in connection with something in commerce, right? Either goods or service that are being used in commerce. So in some countries outside the U.S., all you have to do is file for your trademark rights and you can protect it without actually using it. But in the U.S., it's really use-based. And as soon as you start using a mark in connection with your goods and services, you start accruing common law rights in that mark. So what you want to do usually is file for federal protection, which gives you exclusive nationwide rights over the trademark. This definitely sounds important for any area of business. How might a startup or a new business utilize this um, in expanding their brands? So 
One piece of advice that I like to give to new businesses or entrepreneurs is if they're thinking about their brand, their company name, their product names, things like that, it can be really, really important to think about trademark protection right from day one. Because A, you want to keep your competitors from using something that's similar to what you're using, but you also want to make sure right out of the gate that you're using something that's yours and yours alone, that you're not inadvertently stepping on somebody else's toes. Because you know what you don't want to have happen is get two years into your business development process, you have your goods, you have your packaging, you're all ready to go to the market, and then you suddenly get a cease and desist letter as soon as you make your first social media post saying, hey, I I already have that trademark. Um, A lot of times people will go to the USPTO trademark database and just type in their wording and see if there's anything identical. And they don't realize actually that there's a little more analysis that's necessary to do in terms of a trademark clearance. But then once you've got the clearance and you can go and protect your rights, it's a great way to distinguish yourself in the marketplace and make sure that you really stand out from your competitors. And is that more um, advanced search, something that a trademark attorney such as yourself is able to provide to a business owner? Yeah, I would definitely recommend that retaining a trademark attorney to do that initial clearance search is really important. You can try to do a little bit yourself, but the attorney is going to understand the nuances and what comes into play. A lot of times people don't realize that just applying for a trademark isn't as simple as submitting your application and paying a fee and getting your certificate. There's a whole examination process that goes into it. So an examining attorney at the USPTO is going to review your trademark application to see if there's any confusingly similar marks already registered. And they're going to check to make sure that your trademark functions as a trademark and it's not generic and that it's not offensive, and that it's being used um, in connection with goods or services that are in lawful commerce. So there's a whole host of checks that need to be done before your registration can issue. And a trademark attorney can really help you get through that process. Some business owners might feel as though they don't need to do this or that it's costly. Is it affordable to the everyday business owner? Yeah, I would say it is penny wise and pound foolish to try to do it yourself. Because the trademark application itself is a few hundred dollars, but you have to do an application per mark, per class of goods and services. So the cost of the applications across the different classes that you want to apply for can add up quickly. And if you don't have a trademark attorney to shepherd you through that process, that money can be wasted if you don't get through the process appropriately. A lot of trademark attorneys will provide a flat fee service to help you through that process. It's great to hear that uh, attorneys are being more uh, approachable, especially to the everyday business owner, where you're saying brands now aren't just on your local main street in your town. They're on the internet. They're everywhere. They can sell to people on social media, et cetera. So it's definitely important to dot your I's and cross your T's. Are trademarks simply run by state law or federal? So state and federal laws apply to trademarks. Most times, most states have their own trademark statute. The protection of the state law is not going to be as great as the federal law, though. So most people don't even bother with the state law protections. Yeah, the the few times where it can be advantageous to file for a state law protection is if you're really, really only doing business within your own state. You're not advertising out of state. You don't have customers that come from out of state. That, I think, in in today's economy is very, very rare. The other time that a state law registration might come into, into play is if you have something that's not in lawful commerce on the federal level. 
such as with the cannabis industry. So that's been a strategy that some companies have employed in terms of protecting their IP for something that's not federally legal. I didn't think of that avenue. And I know some current trends lately are discussing trademarks and First Amendment protections. Is that something you can speak to? Well, that that issue really came to the forefront with a case that was in front of the Supreme Court a few years back involving a band called The Slants. And that was an Asian-American band that wanted to trademark their name. And they were refused registration because the word uh, slants can be used as a derogatory term for people of Asian-American descent. I did and, not know that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm, yeah. So um, the band wanted to sort of take back that term and they wanted to exercise their free speech rights to use that term and have it protected under the federal trademark law. And they actually carried the day in the Supreme Court. Wow, good for them. That's interesting. There's so many different avenues and facets of trademark law that I didn't even know about. What's your experience with trademarks now with the new metaverse? So I personally don't have experience in the metaverse. I kind of think it's... Um, Not yet. No, I don't know. Is it is it going to be a big thing or is it going to be... I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, I I do know that there's as soon as there is a new place to do business, there's a new place to commit trademark infringement. (laughs) That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. You know, there's already people, they sell virtual goods in the metaverse, which means as soon as you're selling virtual goods in the metaverse, there's going to be virtual counterfeit goods in the metaverse. So you have a designer handbag company enforcing its trademark rights in the metaverse against a knockoff virtual handbag company. So it creates interesting issues such as what are the damages for that? Right. Yeah, this sounds interesting. Maybe we'll have to circle back as that develops in the next few years to see what happens with trademarks of the metaverse. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that 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 shakes out over the years. What advice <laughs> would you give somebody looking into getting involved in the trademark industry as an attorney? The first piece of advice would be to Set yourself up with a mentor who's an expert in trademark law. AKA you. Me. But, you know, I had the benefit of having a couple of great mentors at my prior firm, one in the litigation side and one on the prosecution side. There's so many different ways that things can go wrong. There's a lot of deadlines in prosecution that if you miss deadlines, you can lose your client's rights. That's not good. (laughs) That is not good. You know? And you want to be able to provide your clients with good advice if they're asking you the legality of what they want to do. You want to make sure that you have a good understanding of the law and what the potential consequences are if there's infringement at issue. So I would say the biggest piece of advice that I have is even if you don't have somebody within your own firm who can oversee you or mentor you as you get into this area of practice, um, a local bar association, for example, the Boston Bar Association, they have um, an IP group. BRI has an IP group that's got tremendous educational seminars. So lining up with colleagues and mentors who are in that space can be a huge, um, huge benefit if you want to get into that area of law. Yeah. Looking for other resources is great, especially like you're saying, if you don't feel like somebody in your firm already does that, having somebody who has done it before will not only lead to you getting better clients, more work, but also will prevent us from having to call Kara for malpractice, right? Exactly. (laughs) That's great. Um, And that's our segment on trademark law. This episode with you, Kara, has been so great. And just to kind of close the loop on things, what advice would you give a first year who's dreaming of becoming a partner 
or somebody who's dreaming of becoming a trademark partner? So my advice for either one of those people would be sort of general. Make yourself useful to the partners that you're working for. Learn to anticipate what they need and learn to ask good questions and learn to ask when to take a problem off a partner's desk and when to go to a partner with a problem. That type of good judgment really will make you stand out as a star associate and propel you forward. And as I always say, I think it's so special in the legal industry that there's such a diversity for the types of work that we can do. You can be a cannabis attorney, a trademark attorney, work at a clerkship, or even become a partner at two firms, just like Kara. So this has been super helpful. And just for infamous three under three, Kara, what is your favorite restaurant? My current favorite restaurant is uh, downtown Boston, a place called Marielle. Cuban oh, yes, it's right near my office. You got to check it out. What do you get there? They have some churrasco steak. They have really good mojitos. It's got a really cool Havana-esque vibe inside. Yeah, it's great for a date night. That sounds awesome. What do you enjoy doing in your spare time? I like playing with my kids. I like going for runs to get away from my kids. (laughs) I like cooking, drinking good wine. What is your best memory about being a lawyer? One of my favorite memories of being a lawyer is uh, arguing a case in the First Circuit for my first time when I was about seven and a half months pregnant. Oh my gosh, good for you. (laughs) I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. Wow, that's awesome. Did you win? Do I ask? Yeah, we we got our summary judgment affirmed. Absolutely. That's awesome. I'd expect nothing else from you, Kara. I had help from the little guy, you know? Oh yeah, right. Exactly. This is super helpful. Thanks so much, Kara, for joining us. If people want to reach out to Kara, you can connect with her at tthorvaldson at lawsonwhiteson.com. That's K-T-H-O-R-V-L-D-S-E-N at L-A-W-S-O-N-W-E-I-T-Z-E-N.com. Also connect with her on LinkedIn. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts, and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, we soundly collect, process, and upload this data to an efficient hosted review platform at an affordable price, allowing you to organize your discovery in one place. Collaborate with your team and experts, withhold and tag for privilege, and find relevant documents more quickly for production. Every litigator deserves to have an e-discovery review support that is efficient and affordable, while access to customer service and project managers that answer questions quickly and make them feel supported. Hundreds of Boston-based litigation attorneys and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with their e-discovery. You should too. Call on Datamine to implement a discovery plan for more efficient and effective collection, review, and production of electronically stored information. Go to datamindiscovery.com or call 617-329-9530, mention Wikigal Lawyers, and schedule a consultation today. Today, we're excited to shine a spotlight on a remarkable company making waves in the legal and litigation support industry. Meet Hughesby, voted number one in the 2023 National Law Journal's Best Of for both court reporting and video depositions. Hughesby is the leading nationwide provider of court reporting, trial services, and litigation support. 
With decades of experience under their belt, Hughesby has established itself as a reliable partner for legal professionals seeking top-notch support in their cases. Their team of certified court reporters is known for their accuracy, professionalism, and attention to detail, ensuring that every word in a deposition or trial is captured precisely. What sets Hughesby apart is their unwavering commitment to personalized customer service. I can speak in regards to my cases and I use Hughesby for my depositions and they are fantastic. So whether you're an attorney, paralegal, or legal professional, Hughesby is your go-to partner for seamless, reliable, and efficient litigation experience. You will not regret it. Don't just take our word for it. Visit Hughesby.com to explore their comprehensive services and see why they're at the forefront of the legal support industry. This show allows us to meet awesome lawyers just like Kara to help me and our listeners become wicked good lawyers. That's our show. Check out our website, wickedgoodlawyers.com for more on Kara, the podcast, and to purchase show merch. A big thank you to our show sponsors, Datamine and US Legal Support. I always love to hear from our listeners, so please subscribe to the show, add me on LinkedIn, and email me at wickedgoodlawyers at gmail.com. Thank you.